This is Voices in Health Law podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Andy Dimitriou, the law firm of Lamb and Kawakami based in Los Angeles, California. I'm a past chair of the Health Law Section and have served on the ABA Board of Governors, just recently concluded my three-year term. I'm currently the section's representative to the ABA's Practice Forward Coordinating Group, and I am vice chair of the Healthcare Reform Task Force for the section. It's my pleasure today to have as a guest my friend Gary Kilty, who is an experienced healthcare and life sciences regulatory and compliance and government investigation support professional, quite a title, based in Tampa, Florida. Uh, Gary has worked over the years with many healthcare organizations, including pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies, in conducting compliance audits of their contractual arrangements with physicians, as well as in leading IRO engagements, uh, which are subject to arrangements, uh, corporate integrity agreements. Gary currently serves as vice chair of the health law section's healthcare fraud and compliance interest group. Gary, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you today to Voices in Health Law. Thank you, Andy. So what I'd like to do at the beginning is put some frame around our discussion today and have you describe the types of arrangements that the various players in the healthcare industry in your experience have when, when we talk about contracts with independent physicians. Sure. And, and really, to your point, we are going to talk about um, contractual arrangements with uh, non-employed or independent physicians or physician groups. And when we talk about the risks, we're gonna be primarily focused on the anti-kickback statute just for this discussion as we go through that. But um, so, you know, there's a variety of reasons why an organization will engage with a non-employed physician and which is certainly appropriate to do. And, and the primary reason is that it may be a a physician or a physician group that has a certain specialty or experience that their own employed physicians don't have. And it's a way for an organization to be involved in the physician community uh, in, their, in their area. So when we think about the types of arrangements, maybe talk about providers. So this would be you know, your hospital, hospital systems, even skilled nursing facilities, home health care. Probably the biggest one is uh, medical directorships. So this is someone who would be you know, medical director of a particular department or a particular area. The other type of arrangement for providers would be for on-call services uh, or specific professional services, you know, very specific um, services that are provided to patients. And then lease arrangements. Often, the, especially on the hospital side, they would, uh, there's arrangements where they are leasing space to uh, independent physicians. On the life sciences side, which, which I'll, you know, basically are a medical device and pharmaceutical manufacturers, you know, the primary uh, type of arrangement would be is referred to as uh, speaker programs. So this would be where the manufacturer uh, is engaging um, a key opinion leader. Uh, to come to a presentation with that particular physician's peers in the community to talk about the product, uh, his or her own experience with it. Another might be product feedback. This is even outside clinical trials where they are they want to engage a, a key opinion leader to give them feedback on, on product development. 
uh, and then maybe really the you know their own experience with that product. Um, so those are the sort of arrangements that are there, and they're important. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing these. The physicians need new products and services, um, and and at the same time, the manufacturers need this as well as the providers. So those are the sort of arrangements. Yeah, let, let's talk for a minute. I mean, in terms of compensation uh, to the physicians in these types of arrangements? I mean, is it a, a, a meaningful amount of money? Is it, uh, you know, when, when you're asking somebody to give a speech, is it just kind of pin money on the side? I mean, how important is this to the physicians? Yeah, well, it's, it's what I, my, at least my own experience is the physicians don't necessarily do this to get in for, for income. They, they recognize there's a need that provides them the opportunity to have that experience providing these services. And from a compliance standpoint, it's important that any sort of compensation meets what's referred to as fair market value. And that fair market value determination, there's, there's survey data for a particular specialty. That's typically how it's done. So no matter what this is, it's really the compensation is based on a specialty. And there's nuances about experience and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and, and really the you know, number of years in the business. But the important thing with that compensation, when it comes down to an hourly basis, is that is within fair market value. And that again can be determined by the entity or you can go to an outside firm that uh, can independently uh, opine on that fair market value. And it seems to me you, you might have a wide range of what constitutes fair market value. Obviously somebody who is contracting to provide on-call services is gonna be compensated very differently than somebody who's giving a speech on behalf of a device company. Correct. Correct. And some of that survey data factors that in for the type of service that they're going to be provided. And you're right, Andy, there are ranges and some organizations say, okay, as long as this proposed compensation meets the 50th percent quartile, then we're good to just move forward. But if it starts creeping up to, let's say, the 75th percentile of survey data or 90 percent, often organizations will say, you know, we if we really need this, we're going to go to the outside, have an independent um, firm look at it. And then often that one of the requirements is it requires either senior management or board level approval, just to make sure that, you know, this is all being looked at correctly. Okay. Well, let's, let's switch gears for a minute. Um, so what are the, the risks uh, to an organization uh, and for that matter to the physician, because uh, you, you've alluded to the kickback statute and it's just as illegal to receive a kickback as it is to pay it. Um, so what are the, the areas of legal risk that you're concerned about? Yeah, and the primary government enforcement uh, focus, at least based on my experience, is that they are concerned that entities are entering into these arrangements primarily with the independent physician, primarily to help drive referrals, that that physician you know, works with patients or products in the community. So the key, I mean, some of the risks really relate to, um, especially for a hospital, I've seen situations where for the same person, there might be three or four different arrangements. It's referred to as stacking. And, and that's a concern from a government standpoint. And if no one's looking at these things in the broader global standpoint, identifying physicians that may have more than one or two arrangements questioning why, that tends to be a, a risk issue. We talked about the excessive compensation. Now, the physicians will argue that's never excessive, but when we talk about you know, fair market value, it needs to meet within that. Also, really a lack of a documented business need. I, my experience is the government is focused on this really 
it's, they've always been focused on it, but it's really become even more of a focus area is, is there an actual business need to engage this physician for this service? And why aren't you doing it, let's say in-house? So the, the lack of business need is where there's a risk. The other is fully executed, timely, uh, fully executed agreements. And there's been over the years, just some, you know, exceptions to that, but generally I advise clients, make sure you're trying to follow the appropriate ways and, and don't try to thread the needle. And so that's making sure that every arrangement before there's a payment is fully executed, explains what the services are going to be, both parties sign it and so forth. And then the other, and this is a big one where the government has really gone after and there's been settlements, it's a lack of evidence of actually the services were rendered. And so the allegation is we're making these payments and the, and the physician really didn't do anything. He or she can't provide evidence that they were actually incurring the time they were supposed to for the payments. And so those are the risks that if organizations aren't tracking these things can, can really put them in a situation where whether it's a whistleblower or, or just a government investigation can really, um, uh, really hurt their chances of trying to recover you know, after the fact. And now we'll take a moment to recognize our health section sponsors. The health law section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and VMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health. Now back to the program. You know, you've talked about a lot of things that seem to me to be basic blocking and tackling uh, as far as organizations are concerned. And the reality is the anti-kickback laws have been around for over 40 years. Uh, the safe harbors, uh, while they still occasionally get updated, have been promulgated over 30 years ago. So why is it that, you know, we still have recurring compliance issues in this area where you think it would be, you know, well-plowed ground? Well, it's a lot of organizations, if you're trying to have a key opinion leader on the life sciences side or you know, a well-known medical director who's qualified, there's a lot of competition for those services. And remember, these are independent physicians. So you may have in a particular market, several hospitals that really want to have this person as their medical director. And there's a lot of pressure, especially on you know, the business side of an organization to get these deals done. And, and so it, it naturally becomes ripe for some risk because people are really maybe pushing the envelope to, to get these signed. The second is really that the physicians, uh, a lot of times, they don't understand why uh, you know, some of these documentation requirements are there. They get frustrated when there's pushback on compensation as it relates to you know, fair market value. Um, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. Is I went back to are the services actually rendered? I mean, they're they're busy people, right? They they don't want to have to do the time logs and the timesheets and what those services are. Um, and the other is this really into you were saying and why organizations struggle. Yes, it's been around, but as organizations get bigger, you have a lot more of these sort of arrangements. And unfortunately, there tends to be a decentralized process where you've got the business side trying to get the deal done. Legal is looking at the contracts and that's it. You might have finance, you know, they're the ones that are maybe looking at fair market value. You have accounts payable, who's responsible for making payments. And what happens is organizations aren't, they don't have a process to oversee these things in the totality. So then there might be a breakdown somewhere and it's not being picked up. And, and that's why organizations, 
unless they're under a corporate integrity agreement, you know, as it relates to these things, there's just not tight procedures. So things slip through the crack and that's where the risks are. It's very interesting you say that because you, you mentioned a number of departments that could potentially interact in these areas. And the one word I didn't hear was the compliance department. Isn't it the role in most big organizations, of course, have a compliance officer and oftentimes a, a compliance department. Shouldn't they be, uh, in effect, the watchdog you were describing? Well, they should. And we're going to talk a little bit about what the compliance department can do as it relates to you know, the basic blocking and tackling of auditing and monitoring to make sure that these arrangements you know, continue to be compliant, and if there are any risk areas, they're picked up. But like for a lot of organizations, you know, they're stretched, they may be focused on other areas, and they may in the past have had limited contractual arrangements with independent physicians, but now it's starting to grow. So there's a variety of reasons, but yes, you don't have to convince me uh, to say that this is important for the compliance, in my opinion, also the legal department to be very involved in this to make sure the risks are mitigated. Well, and, and how often do you see the phenomenon where you'll have non-compliance professional type executives or non-legal executives who are running around trying to make these deals? They've been around for a while. They've seen the paperwork before. And so they kind of start to freelance a little bit rather than necessarily seeking advice. They say, oh, well, we've gotten advice in the past and, you know, here's the form. Let's, let's go with it. I mean, is that a, a, a significant issue? Uh, it is uh, for both providers and life sciences companies. My experience with the big life sciences companies is, especially an international one, is that there's just people use different law firms. There might be different compliance officers for different divisions. And sometimes there's not that central look at how all this is done. And even if you have a you know, an international arm of a manufacturer, they may engage a physician here in the U.S. Um, that the U.S. compliance folks might not be aware of. And, and so, I mean, those are some of the reasons. On the provider side, you know, there can be mergers, there can be growth. And just as they grow, um, I just the, the, the previous entities were used to doing things a certain way, to your point, they have experience on it. And it doesn't get looked at in the totality with now the you know fully merged entity, and that can trigger risk. So um, when you are engaged by a client in a situation, and I'll, I'll ask you to answer this in two ways. Let's assume you're engaged um, to merely review the compliance efforts and the, the, the business practices of the client with regard to physician engagements. And how is that different from a situation where you're engaged after the fact, where either there's been a whistleblower complaint the company is aware of, uh, they're getting a hint that there's a government investigation ongoing, or they've been advised there's a government investigation ongoing. And you know, you've talked about some of the compliance measures previously, but how does your approach vary depending on what the client situation is? Yeah, so maybe let's talk about the, you know, first part where they're trying to just understand what sort of oversight they have. So as, as a consulting uh, firm or consultant, we're trying to understand what processes are in place, who's responsible for initially identifying the need and is legal actually looking at the agreements and how does that feedback come back? Um, you know, what about fair market value? Do, do they have a process for that? Who's responsible for that? 
um, before payments are made, is someone making sure that those payments are correct? Just because you get an invoice from the physician may not necessarily mean it agrees to the agreement. So the, it's more of an assessment of understanding you know, who's responsible um, for the oversight and then you know, what sort of reporting happens. And it can be an eye opener for the organization because even sometimes if they really think they've got it pretty tight, you know, when you really start looking under the covers, you realize there's some gaps and it's helpful for them to try to, you know, close those as quickly as possible. And really that when we do our assessment, a, a good work plan, we'll talk a little bit about some of the things, is if you pull up any arrangements, corporate integrity agreement. So when I say arrangements, these are either for life sciences companies or providers that are focused on this exact issue. It's how arrangements with physicians, primarily independent physicians, are, are monitored. And, and that's something that you can you go through that and you can see as an organization, for those that unfortunately have had to settle and enter into these things, the sort of oversight that it's not voluntary. I mean, they have to do it as part of their corporate integrity agreement. On the flip side, when there's an issue, often, especially um, it can be either an inquiry or a concern or a key TAM, Often there's an allegation related to like one issue. And um, often sometimes the facts that are being thrown around are actually not facts. There's not necessarily misinformation, but not all information that's out there. And so one of the things that we do is, you know, work with outside counsel often and with the entity is to find out, okay, the allegation with a particular arrangement, let's go back and understand you know, what the process was, do we have the documentation for it, are certain things actually that may have been alleged even true. So it's kind of your typical, you know, investigation support fact finding and either there's an issue or there's not. And if it's an internal investigation, when, and you probably see this with settlements, there's organizations that come forward to the government, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have to be the ones settling, they come forward and say, we've, we've looked at this, we identified where either compensation was too much, or you know, a certain arrangement did not have the documentation. So they come forward to the government to try to negotiate something rather than having a settlement entering into a, a corporate integrity agreement. And a related question, when you're in that kind of an engagement, you have an active now, either an investigation, uh, there's a whistleblower suit out there or, or very significant risk of that sort. Talk for a minute, because I know a lot of our audience are lawyers, how do you relate to counsel, either internal or external counsel in that situation, um, so that uh, we can be uh, sure that they're getting protection of privileged information or, or have other concerns? Yeah, so I mean, as a consultant, it's important that we understand that and the, you know, when it's, even if our client is not necessarily suggesting it, that once there is an allegation, it's important to kind of put a box around it. And, and that's to work with outside counsel where the consultant would um, do our work under their direction, under privilege, where our engagement is actually with the law firm representing the entity and that the law firm or the attorneys are involved in the entire process where they understand the sort of work we're gonna do to try to understand the fact finding. And then certainly if there's anything that we find or that might be an issue, that that's discussed with counsel either before or, in, or at the same time talking with the client and really understanding as a consultant what the attorney or the law firm 
because I will share with you, law firms and attorneys do have different approaches to protecting privilege. And you know, for each client that you're working with or each attorney, it's important that we're all on the same page, right, uh, as it relates to that. Now, do you find that, that in instances like this, you're actually preparing a written report? And if so, how do you work with counsel in ensuring that what you write is something that the client's going to want in their files? Yeah, so that, that Amy, is a good question and something that's always helpful to discuss, you know, early on in the process rather than at the end. You know, I, I, there, there is an argument that sometimes there should be limited work product, right, um, throughout the, you know, throughout the analysis. Um, and, you know, if there is going to be work product, like some sort of report, you know, why, you know, why should it actually be communicated orally? Uh, but certainly if there's going to be any sort of self-disclosure, that's where it's important to have some sort of report that, again, before it's written and we're handing a draft, we're, we're working or as a consultant, working with counsel to say, what, what do we want this report to look like? What do we want to touch on it? Do we want recommendations or do we want just the facts and what we found? And really kind of with the end in mind, the old adage, you know, write for the reader. If this is going to an enforcement agency, let's make sure up front we're providing the information that's going to be helpful for that enforcement agency to understand the issue. Last topic I want to touch on is let's assume you've gone through an investigation process or you've identified some flaws in the compliance issues. And now the company has to go back to a physician uh, with whom they have a contract and either propose modifications in the contract or change procedure, um, maybe change the compensation. How do you advise clients in dealing with that issue, especially when you're likely to encounter pushback like it's very valuable uh, what this doctor is doing in terms of our business enterprise. We don't want to upset the doctor and have them bail on us. Um, so how do you help the clients navigate those kinds of touchy situations? So my experience is it, it's, a, it's a dual effort um, that is very important for compliance and legal to get the, it's called the business side on board. And my experience is the best way to do that is not to just make this a burdensome regulatory issue and that makes good business sense. I mean, why would we be overpaying, let's say, um, just because a physician is demanding it? Um, we should be making sure that our payments that are going to the doctor, someone's looking at those and, and making sure it's correct. And that someone is actually signing off on those services that are provided. I mean, in my opinion, those are putting aside the compliance. These are good business practices that should be done um, in, in any event. Um, you know, also going back to the physician, uh, Andy, you mentioned this early on that um, it's not just providers and the manufacturers, but now there's kind of an increased, you know, scrutiny on the physician themselves. It's not just that they, that they have no skin in this. And, and so one thing that's important for them to understand is, listen, fair market value, it's, it's changed and we are, it doesn't meet the parameters anymore. And you don't want to be part of an investigation any more than we do. And so this is a business partnership. We are dealing with regulations and enforcement issues. And it's just very important that both of us, both sides of this um, arrangement are comfortable that's not gonna be scrutinized. Um, there are gonna be some physicians that are gonna still push back on that, but generally speaking, that seems to resonate. And of course, there's plenty of settlements 
it's all public information that's there. And then, uh, you know, if there is a settlement and there is, uh, uh, you know, it often leads to a corporate integrity agreement. So this is no longer voluntary. I mean, now for the next five years, you are going to be scrutinized living under that corporate integrity agreement. That's something that no one wants. Well, Gary, this has been, you know, highly useful today. And, and uh, on behalf of the section, I really appreciate uh, your willingness to talk with us today. This concludes our podcast of Voices in Health Law, which is part of a continuing series from the American Bar Association Health Law section. For more information and to see our other podcasts or listen to them, please visit our website at ambar.org health. Thank you very much.